Happy Monday, everybody. Good afternoon. So Patty just said to me, I asked her if she was ready. She said, I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. That's right. That's right, because I don't know what else I would possibly do at this point. <laughs> because we know where we are on Mondays at 3 o'clock, except for last Monday. Last Monday, where were we in the afternoon? Uh, we we drove down to Santa Monica Pier. Drove up. Drove up to Santa Monica Pier, yes. Yes. And I'll be honest, we found it a little bit wanting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know... Um, it had changed a lot. Yeah, it's one of those places in California that's having a, a pretty good-sized homeless problem. Yeah. And the pier was... It was a little bit sketchy. It was fine, sketchy. but a little bit that? sketchy here yeah. and there. But we rode the carousel. We did. We walked around and we watched people fish and... We, you we, know, we watch all that birds kind of stuff. steal people's yeah. fish. Yeah, <laughs> we did. They so it was nice. It was a heck of a drive back, though. It was. We left at a bad time, but we didn't know what else to do. We were done. Man. We were done. And so we, we left and made the made the long drive back. Much of it on the infamous 405. Yes. And uh, it took a long, long time. It did. It was it was like an hour and 30 minutes or something yeah. in the car. Yeah. And uh, the same thing the day we went to Universal, because, again, it's way north of Newport Beach. And um, that took us an hour and 45 minutes to get there. So by the time you get there. <laughs> <laughs> you are ready to be there. You're ready to be there. Because if there's like one accident, you don't even get to see the accident. All you're doing is waiting in traffic for the traffic to clear from the accident that happened a while back and is already long gone. Yes, yes. Right? I mean, that's really the reality of what happened to us on the way to Universal on Wednesday. It was. It was just like, wow. And we thought we were maybe going to escape, but no, right at the last, last minute, minute, almost there, so, eight miles down the road, and you're just, you just bit... By, by bit, bit, inch by so inch. So when we got, get there, um, <laughs> as most amusement parks are, the parking is way, way out in, you know, left field. And I don't know, but I think possibly we paid the highest price for parking anywhere that we ever had. Because to park way out in, in like, I mean, like, a, you know, a mile and a half walk to the gate kind of thing, it was $30. Okay. Hi, but that's okay. Then we found out that if you wanted to literally park outside the front door, which is what we got to do, it was $60. So we but figured. I told him it was really only 30 because we had to pay 30 anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that helped a lot because once you once you've burned up two hours of drive, you, you want to get in as much as you can. So we, we went, we go to the front gate parking and, and they lead us in, lead us in, lead us in. And we are literally right by the front gate yes. of... Universal Studios yeah. and it was very nice because you know I kind of wanted to and Patty said yes because you know I, I kind of don't have the energy I once did for various reasons that we won't talk about right now but um, <laughs> we get out of the car and they came and gave us this I don't know do you think it was a four ounce bottle I of water so. or a two ounce four, bottle of water four ounces a four ounce bottle of water and a tiny little shrunken pack like something from the movie Honey I Shrunk the Kids a tiny pack of chewy Fruit chews. Yes. And she said, oh, here, these are part of your front gate experience. Experience. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it took us a while to quit laughing about that. But anyway, anyway went, went in the park, had a fun time, wrote a lot of stuff. Scott always says to me, honey, we're making memories. We're Make making it, we memories. We are making memories. So that's, that's it. Yeah. That's the key. That That's something I learned in life a long time ago. Yep. And it's true, isn't it? Yes. I, I, I would always tell young people in life, 
You know, you, you'll come and the stuff in your life will come and go. All of the cars and houses and furniture and, but the memories, you'll always have those. So right. make memories. That's right. Make memories in life that you can look back on and chuckle as we yes. do now. So now that we've given you our park tips, <laughs> we better pray. We better pray. Yes. Get going on Isaiah, yes. right, honey? Yes. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are so grateful to be here today. Grateful we can gather on this Monday as we do nearly every Monday throughout the year. And we come here today to resume our journey through the scroll of Isaiah. And uh, we just pray your blessings on our time together. Um, we pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, help us to to go a little deeper, see a little more in 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 the book of Isaiah, as well as help us to grasp the larger picture of of what the this story really of 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 your work in this world in our in our lives as our Savior and our Deliverer. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Okay. I'm going to get on the other side. So. Okay, Patty. There we go. I know. I was kind of bantering there for too long. So. Were we bantering too long? I don't know. Yeah. I just lost track of time. So much fun, right? <laughs> it's all right. Uh, all right. So here's where we are. We are at um, uh, Isaiah chapter 38, and it is the story of Hezekiah's illness. So... Let me just kind of get in the helicopter for a minute, okay? Chapters 1 to 39. We are going to finish this whole book, that the portion of the scroll that is sometimes called First Isaiah. Sometimes it's called First Isaiah among people who study Isaiah. First Isaiah, chapters 1 to chapter 39. It comes from the time of Isaiah. Now, that doesn't say there weren't other people participating in the actual writing of it or in the editing of it and stuff, but it comes from the time of Isaiah. Pretty much everybody has agreed upon that. And um, uh, it, it ends at about 700 BC. That's when the story is, because last week we looked at chapters 36 and 37, which tells the story of the Assyrian um, uh, invasion uh, hoping to take the kingdom of Judah, which is namely Jerusalem. So let me let me bring up a map that I brought today that we had last week. Just to there we go. Look at that. Okay, there's the map. So there's the infamous little blotch down there at the bottom in 722 BC, and the years matter not be in and of themselves, but because it's important to grasp time frames. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire overran the northern kingdom of Israel. And last week, we covered the story of what happened about 20 years later, only 20 years, 20 years later, when the current Assyrian king, Sennacherib, decided that it was time to go ahead and take Jerusalem. Because, as you can see from the little orange blotch, really Jerusalem is all that's left of the kingdom of Judah, all right? So, and we saw in that story last week, not last week, I know, I know, last time we met, whatever I say, you know what I mean, um, that the Assyrians were chased home 
um, despite all, all, any forecast, any prediction, any prognostication about what was going to happen, would have had the Assyrians overrunning Jerusalem because Jerusalem couldn't stand up to the Assyrian Empire. They were cut off. They were seemingly alone in the ways of the world, but, but instead the Assyrians went home, went elsewhere. And why did that happen? That's the question. Why did it happen? Because God delivered Jerusalem, right? And when we saw that the that in the scroll of Isaiah, and also in the same story in the book of Kings, um, they basically get up one morning, and the Assyrian army is all dead, you know. And so they go they go home. Now, I don't have a time machine. I don't know. I personally doubt that they were all dead, but we know from sources outside the Bible that for some reason the Assyrians broke off the siege and just left. And so that story of God's deliverance of, of Jerusalem, which God had promised, um, God's deliverance of Jerusalem, get sort of lived out as the whole Assyrian army basically dying overnight. Um, there are other instances like that in the Bible where, where events are used to tell theology and it can make it a little bit um, a little bit tricky to it can lead you down some rabbit holes if you want to read every bit of it Literally, and we're going to come to another one of those today. So you just got you just got to get used to seeing them. It's how they do this. Um, so in thirty six and thirty seven in Isaiah, you get the story of the Assyrian invasion and God delivering Jerusalem and chasing the Assyrians away and thus rescuing Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will stay independent for another. 120 years or so. Let's call it that. 120 years or so. Okay. Now, in 38, we come to the story of Hezekiah's illness. Now, the chronology of this is we'll, as is really even clear in the scroll, is actually that the illness of Hezekiah happened before the invasion of the Assyrians even though they're not in that order in the scroll. So the question is, well, why in the scroll did, um, is, it, is the invasion story told and then the story of Hezekiah's illness? Because the writers of this book, like all the books in the Bible, are not interested, first and foremost, in timelines. We love timelines. I like a timeline. Patty likes a timeline. We all like timelines. I think just TV shows called timelines, you know, how it really happened and other things. We like our timelines, everything neat and order with dates and times and all that kind of stuff. That is not what the Bible's about, really. It's not. It, it is about helping you grasp who God is. So the first story told is of God delivering Jerusalem. And now the second story told is going to be God delivering Hezekiah. The focus is on God being the deliverer. And from the larger picture, 
down to down to down to like one person. And I find that beautiful because I think it's easy for us to focus only on the larger picture or it's easy for us to focus on each individual's salvation. But the Bible wants to hold the two things together. So we have the one story in chapters 36 and 37 about the deliverance of all of the God's people, the, the whole, all of Jerusalem, the whole kingdom of Judah, what's left of it. And, um, and then the story of Hezekiah's illness and his deliverance. So the story of Hezekiah's illness, I just want to prepare you, is a story that's rich in theological questions. I teach it fairly often. I use it fairly often in my teaching because it's going to ask us, what is God like? Um, does God ever change God's mind? Do our prayers ever really matter in the sense of actually changing something? Those are the kind of questions that are going to come to mind when we read through the story of Hezekiah. And a lot of people are really much too dismissive of this story, I think. I think the, these stories are told to us and given to us for a reason so that we can see the theology behind them and take the presentation of God in these stories seriously. So, wow, that was a long introduction. And it's getting darker outside. <laughs> As I do it. I'm not sure what that means, but yeah. So do you have anything to, um, Patty, before we go yeah. on? And I just realized I completely and utterly, you take me away for one week and I'm out of. What did you forget? <laughs> my iPad. Oh, okay. Would you want to get my iPad? Sure. It's right there on the counter where it normally is. Okay. okay. Here it is. You brought it so far. Well, this the, I think this will oh, work. Gosh. I think I think that this this I actually got a new iPad not long ago, but if this one has enough battery, Patty, would yes. you please go ahead? <laughs> yeah, this one's been sitting here a while. I think it's kind of dead. <laughs> so as Patty wrote, we're going to be starting at Isaiah chapter thirty-eight, and we will do today chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine. If we have a few minutes, we will talk about the setup for Isaiah 40 because beginning in Isaiah 40, we come to the chapters that come from a later time, from the Babylonian exile. Thank you, dear. Okay, here we go. All right. All righty. That was the very first world problem. You have two iPads and yeah, Windows in I know, charged. but I had that other one for a long time, and, I, and then did. I got you this new them. one, and it was just like, wow, I could actually do work on this thing. It's incredible. So, okay, so I've got to find my way to my Bible app, and y'all don't get impatient with me, please. I'm an old man. Okay. <laughs> Does that mean I'm married to an old man? I'm afraid so. so, dear. Okay. okay, so we're at Hezekiah's illness. Now, remember, this story of Hezekiah's illness is actually taking place before the final deliverance of Jerusalem by God from the Assyrians. We'll see. So, 
in those days, just a general in those days, kind of like almost not kind of like once upon a time, but not quite because Hezekiah is a real guy. It's just in those days, just the time when Hezekiah was king, he became ill and he was ill at the point of death. So I don't know how ill any of us have ever been in our lives. Maybe some of you have been ill in your life to the point of death, but um, Hezekiah has obviously been, been taken very sick. And he's in a world where it was much easier to be taken sick. Why? To the point of death. Why? Because they don't really have medicine. Not really. I mean, they've got herbs and whatever other poultices they might they might have figured out. But, uh, you know, if you get an infection, there's... You, you, you can't go get some antibiotics or something to, to knock it out. So... So illnesses like injuries um, uh, could really be very life-threatening, much more so than our, in our days. So in those days, Hezekiah, the king, right? The king of Judah, the king of the southern kingdom, was at the point of death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, this is what Yahweh says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. So just, you know, I I don't know. I love putting myself in these stories. So just put yourself in this story. You're Hezekiah. You're lying in this bed. You fear you're about to die. You're sick as a dog. Everybody's giving you bad news. And Isaiah walks in and says, the worst news of all. Isaiah, God's prophet. Everybody knows he's God's prophet. He's been bringing God's word for a while. Right? And he walks in and he looks at you lying on your bed there and he says to you, get your house in order. You're going to die. You will not recover. Wow. Wow. What would you do? What would you do? How would you feel? What would be the next thing you said? What would be the next thing you did? You're the king. You're the most powerful person in the land. And the prophet has said you're going to die and you are not going to recover. Well, in the book of Kings, the same story is told. And, and it adds a little phrase here at the beginning of the next paragraph that says... Um, well, that's I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. So here's what here's what Hezekiah does. He turns his face to the wall and he prays to Yahweh. Prayer is always a good idea. We're going to talk about prayer for a little bit today. He says, Remember, Yahweh, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So his response to this terrible, terrible news that God says from the prophet's mouth to Hezekiah's ear, God says you're going to die. Hezekiah rolls over and he says, Remember me, Lord. Remember me, Lord. I have walked before you faithfully 
with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And indeed, Hezekiah is remembered as one of the good kings of Israel. He gets a good report card. He gets a good report card. And then he wept bitterly. He's not ready to die. He's in the prime of his life. He's not ready to die. This whole thing is catching him completely off guard. Well, now I'm at the right place. In the book of Kings, it tells us that Isaiah turned, left the room, and before he was even out of the palace, now look at verse 4 here in the scroll of Isaiah, the word of Yahweh came to Isaiah. All right, so Isaiah delivers God's word to Hezekiah, leaves the room, is walking out of the palace before he's even gone. God comes back to Isaiah and says to him, all right, go and tell Hezekiah, this is what Yahweh, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. You see, it's there in that last part of the paragraph that tells us that this story is actually from, from before the, um, the threat by the Assyrians, because, or at least before it's over, because God says he's going to deliver the city yet. So, um, all right, Isaiah's not going to be done. So God continues to tell Isaiah, this is the Lord's sign to you, to Hezekiah, that Yahweh will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. Now, right? So he's turning back time. And how would you how would you how would you accomplish that? Well, I guess he'd have to kind of reverse the way. You'd have to, you ever yeah. seen the first you remember the first Superman movie? Yes, yeah, so you'd have to spin. Would you save so Lois fast. Lane? He made the world spin backwards. <laughs> yes, that's what you'd have to do. You have to make the world reverse its rotation. So again, I think it's really for me. You don't have to agree with me about this, but these are the kind of places where I I I see in them I see in them the theology. I understand it's like there was a um, a Jewish fellow who came and talked to us at St. Andrew one time about the Bible and about how Jews read the Bible. And he said, one thing Jews do is, with the Old Testament, is that they we don't always ask, how did it happen? What we ask is, well, why was it written this way? Which, and I think that's sometimes a helpful thing to keep in mind. It's written this way so that we grasp that this is true and this is and, and, and God is ready to back up what he did. This is, this is God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. And so if we just stop right here and think about this story, what have we seen? We have seen that Hezekiah's gotten bad news, terrible news. From the mouth of God, he finds out he's going to die. His response is to appeal to God in a prayer. And the response to that prayer is what? 
to give him 15 more years. So in the story, what happens? God changes God's mind. True? Patty, you think yeah. that's true? I do. Isn't that what's happening? Yes. In this story? For many Christians, particularly of the Calvinist persuasion, they have great difficulty with this because it would they believe that God has ordained everything that's going to happen because Calvin believed God had ordained everything that was going to happen. Calvin said if it's if the wind is blowing from the east today and from the west tomorrow, it's because God had ordained it to do so. But you have this story and others like it which depict something else. That a God deeply involved with his people, a God who wants us to come to him, him in prayer, a God who is responsive to us in prayer, responsive enough that our prayers can actually change what will happen. And I remember years ago, I'm going to read it to you in a second, but I came across this quote from a writer named Dallas Willard, who was this, he's, he's passed away a few years ago this really outstanding Christian thinker and writer, especially about discipleship. And he said, you know, we, we come to God and we have, too many of us have this idea that, that our prayers can't really change anything because it's already set up. We're watching like the second half of a movie or the second half of a parade. It's already done. And so in that, where is the room for God to change his mind? And Dallas Willard says, well, that rob, robs, power of its, robs prayer of its power. So let me read to you, if I get the right glasses on here, the actual quotation from Dallas Willard. He says, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does and does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of those who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course doesn't God doesn't respond to that. You wouldn't either. And I just have to tell you, I think he, Dallas Willard was right on the mark. I think this story is one of many places we could go in Scripture to see that indeed our prayers matter. Our prayers can make a difference. God desires our prayers and is responsive to our prayers. It doesn't mean that when we spell things out, we always get what we want. Of course not, because most of the time we're not really praying within God's will. I don't know why. You could ask me why does Hezekiah get this 15 more years? I don't know. It doesn't really even tell us that, does it, Patty? It doesn't. It doesn't. God just says, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I'm going to give you 15 more years. 
Don't ask me about the cures we pray for that never happen. But some do, you see. Some do. And I, I, I you know, um, I'm thinking also of another one of my favorite writers about the Bible, a guy named Terence Fretheim. And he says, look, when we come to, to tough things about, why, about what God does and suffering in this world and why would Hezekiah get 15 more years and somebody I love doesn't get 15 more years, he says, we Christians should not pretend that we have the answers to those questions because we don't. But he says, ah, but we have something to say. We have something to say about the nature of God, about the character of God, and about the nature of this life and, and the suffering in this life, and this life transcending even our time in this body right now on earth. Um, and they're just clues to this kind of thing all over the Bible. And you just have to kind of get used and and be overjoyed when you come upon them. I, this this made me think of actually something from the book of Job. So, me too. That's what I was just going to bring up. Okay, well, go to Job chapter nineteen, verse twenty-five. I was just thinking of that myself, and I thought, this is you know, got to think about see. Job that he does. He doesn't know everything. <laughs> now, that is the, the big point in Job's thing, is that he doesn't know everything. But I had another little little thought. Now, where is the book of Job in my on my iPad? It is <laughs> right it is. after Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Oh, I know that. It's just looking for it on these little squared out verse things I've got here. But the iPad does make it easier for me to read this. So, there we go. So, you know the story of Job, right? This is a guy who, he has no idea about the wager God has made with the accuser. When the accuser said, well, Job only loves you because of everything you've given him. Take it all away, God, and Job is going to turn his back on you and despise you. And that's what the whole book is built on, that premise. What will Job do when everything is taken away and he's reduced to this old guy sitting on the ground, scraping his boils, with shards of broken pottery and his wife is looking at him and saying, well, just go ahead and die, right? His friends come, they're smart, they stay silent for a week, but then they start offering up all sorts of explanations, none of which get to the, to the deep truth in the book of Job. But in the 19th, 19th chapter, Job has something to say himself about this. And bear in mind that Job is perhaps... Just I'm just saying perhaps. The oldest piece of writing in your Old Testament. That the story of Job comes from a time before the book of Genesis was even written down. It's old. Job is not an, even an Israelite. He's from the land of Uz. Not Oz. Uz. Right? But it explores these questions about God and us and suffering and why do good things happen? Why do bad things happen? And it explores them in profound ways. So look at chapter 19, verse 25. And here's, here's Job's proclamation. He says, I know 
despite everything that's happened to me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. See, even there, there's this hint of renewal, yeah. restoration, and resurrection. Right? Yeah. Right? It's just, he says, verse 27, I myself will see him with my own eyes. I, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Wow. Wow. There's, it, those kind of things are just all over the place in the Bible. These little, these little signs in the ground all along as you make your way through the biblical story pointing you to a larger truth. And even we're going to see the same thing here in just a minute in chapter 38 of Isaiah. So, you know, for me, I, I believe that God does change God's mind. I don't know why in some cases and not in others. I don't know that I can always tell them. I, don't th I can't tell them apart. It's not like I know everything that's going to happen. So, but I, but I, I just know that God is responsive to our prayers. God wants us to love God. For lo God loves us. God wants us to love God. God wants us to love others. Love requires mutuality. Love requires genuine mutuality and response. Um, and that's the context for, for prayer. So, anyway... Okay. You have anything to add there, Patty? Uh, what I was thinking of, of course, I have had been blessed to have many prayers answered for me, but I've had a number of prayers in my life that absolutely did not go the way I hoped things would. But what I was thinking in Job is that what, and I, I too was going to say how old this book was. And so it was all the way back then. This is before Moses or any, you know, anybody that, God gave this revelation to Job that I am God, you're not. Mm. And it's really, you know, you really can't question me. I've got my reasons. And I've got it, my reasons. And that's it. That's And that's it. That is just <laughs> God looks at Job and says, I made the hippopotamus. Did yes. you? I made the tiger. Did you? I made this. I made that. Did you? Did you? Did you? Did you? And the answer, of course, is no. And, uh, you know, we humans like to think we're on, we're the top of the heap, but no, no. There is a creator indeed. Um, Linda is asking you, does Isaiah 57, which I know is a little bit ahead of us, 1 and 2 tie into this? Well, I'm, okay, my iPad, let's go, 57. I'm I'm heading there. We're all, we can all head to Isaiah 57. I don't know how many of you working off an iPad or out of a bound. It's a little faster actually if there's a binding. Okay, 57. The righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. 
Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find the rest. They find rest as they lie in death. Well, it's certain for me those two verses, Linda, speak to the truth that our existence transcends our our life here, right? And so, gosh, I could put it in the context of 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 people in in Ukraine, right? Um, we were we saw one the other day. It was one of the cities' apartment building got hit as they were preparing to go to their Easter Sunday because they're Orthodox in Ukraine, their Easter Sunday services or something, and and people were killed and and the truth is that they are they are now with Christ they are now with Christ they do walk in peace um, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean we need to run toward death that isn't the answer either but certainly we need to have a much larger view than many people do of what of what life is what our life is, what it will consist of. So I'm making my way back to Isaiah 38. Any other questions Because about this? Um, we're, we're not really finished with the story of, of the illness, but we've got the essence of it done. Because now we're going to get a reflection, a, a writing from the king about mortality. And we, we may have um, some more thoughts come to mind. So let's look at chapter 38, verse 9. That's where we are. Chapter 38, verse 9. This is a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. So after he recovers from this brush with death, when God gave him 15 more years as a direct result of Hezekiah's prayer. That's the way it's cast, right? That's the way it's written. Yes. Verse 10, Hezekiah says, I said in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? I said, I will not again see Yahweh himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those who now dwell in this world. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, and he has cut me off from the loom. Day and night, you made an end of me. He's talking about what would have happened had he died, right? Yes. I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion, he broke all my bones. Day and night, you made an end of me. I cried like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. I think all of that is a poetic expression. Certainly more poetic than I could come up with. A poetic expression of how Hezekiah felt on the verge of death. When Isaiah walks in and says, you are going to die. Get your house in order. You are not going to recover. 
verse 15. Deep breath, maybe, but what can I say? He has spoken to me. God has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of the anguish of my soul. Now reflecting on how this, what has happened, changed him. Kind of like his stay of execution. Yeah. He's, he, I'm sure he was shocked when Isaiah came back into the room. He had, could, he roll, Hezekiah rolls over, prays, and within minutes Isaiah is back and says, you have another 15 years. And he says, I will walk humbly all my years because of the anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health. You let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Wow, that is profound. Right? Because like, like all the ancients, everything that happens to them happens basically because God made it happen. I mean, if it wasn't their neighbor or their family, God made it happen. God is behind every lightning stroke, every illness, uh, every 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 hailstone that falls to the ground, um, every oasis that springs forth. God is God is the first cause of virtually all things. So He says, "Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish, because He knows that God is loving and faithful and good and merciful." So if this was going to, if he was going to die in his prime and go through this suffering, it must have been for his good, for his benefit. You know, in a way, I just, maybe I shouldn't, I don't know, but it makes me think of Paul's line in the letter of the Romans when he thinks all things work for good for those who love the Lord. And, and Hezekiah is going to find good out of this. He's going to find benefit out of this experience that he's had. Verse 17, Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. Now that pit of destruction, that is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. That is the place where the dead are. That, and for the Greeks, that place was called Hades. It's simply the place where the dead are. It was not a place of punishment. It was just the place where the dead went. But it wasn't very pleasant. It wasn't very pleasant. So this was is not, like a was place not desirable. where you'd go, though, in your afterlife. It was not like where you would Gehenna go in Jesus' day where we say that they were tossed into... No, the there's nothing... There's this no. is, you know, people would die and they would wonder, like, what this happens to them? Place. What happens to the person that I knew, even though the body was left? They go down to Sheol, Hades, all underground. Because remember, for the ancients, God is up uh, up yep. there. You have the earth, and beneath the earth's surface lies the place of the dead, um, filled with, as the Greeks called it, shades. Um, we might call them ghosts. But, but, but not... Not pleasant, not the kind of thing we think of now in light of Christ when we talk about being reunited with Christ after um, being united with Christ 
after our death. Maybe this was like a purgatory. No, wasn't even a purgatory. Because okay. pur pur purgatory is something that is meant to make get you ready for the next phase. Okay. There is no next phase. Sheol is just it. Okay. Though they did, again, if you go through the Old Testament, there's all these little bits about rescue us from Sheol, rescue me from Sheol, kind of hinting and looking forward to a day of renewal and restoration, and that would become the belief in the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of the body. Right? Which was hinted at in that Job chapter 19, when Job says, I'm going to seek my Redeemer in the flesh. Well, really? You know, how's that going to be? That's resurrection. Um, so I see Lynn, yeah, I see Lynn is right. Our getting through tough times can make us more compassionate to others' troubles. I can certainly endorse that. I can certainly say that mine having gone through this cancer thing for the last five or six years has made me more compassionate and understanding towards people who are fighting similar battles. Because through most through all of my life, I had, at least illness-wise, I had been spared any trouble whatsoever. None. Had a few personal issues in the past around marriages, but, you know, <laughs> not illnesses. So, look at verse 17 again. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. And if, if you put something behind your back, can you see it? No. no. See, it's a beautiful way of talking about God putting my sins out of God's sight. Now, I've put all my sins behind your back. Now, and here we get to the difference, right? So this is Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. Their ideas about the afterlife and salvation, they're not the same as ours. And you can't, you can't expect that. They're 700 years away from Jesus yet. Verse 18, For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Because generally in the ancient world, when you went to Sheol or went to Hades, that was it. It was over. Game over. You had had your time on earth. Now you're down there in this gray, wandering time. And so what he's saying is those who have died cannot hope for God's faithfulness. Well, in light of Christ, we know that's not true. Right? Yes. So here's, as we find so often in the Bible, you find this developing idea. So here's this developing idea about what salvation means. Because now, in light of Christ, and in light, indeed, even of the beliefs of Jews in Jesus' day, um, we know that those who died can their hope is in God's faithfulness. Verse 19, it's kind of a repeat of the same idea. The living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today. Parents tell their children about your faithfulness. 
as opposed to the people who have gone to the pit of destruction, who suppose the people have died. So, gosh, you know, Hezekiah says, I'm really glad that you saved me because the living, the living, in verse 19, they praise you as I am doing today. Parents tell their children about your faithfulness. Verse 20, Yahweh will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of Yahweh. So it is a bleak, you might say to me, well, Scott, that's kind of a bleak view of death and all. It is, <laughs> you know, really? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and what you find between this point in the story of God, 700 years before Jesus, and the, the time of Jesus is this growing recognition of something more, something else. This vision Ezekiel has, a couple hundred years after the, the writing of these words here, of the dry bones all knitting themselves back together, and the, the community of God's people being restored to life and to goodness, right? And then later on in the scroll of Isaiah even, the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. And then later the development of the idea of the resurrection of the body, which is hinted at in Job 19. Until finally, you know, you come to Paul writing the Philippians, well, the executioner might be coming for me, but you know, I'm ready to quote, be with Christ. And a just huge statement of hope even in the face of death. So, all from 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 verse, uh, what verse was it? All the all, everything from verse ten to verse twenty is this. I'll call it poetry. Poetry that Hezekiah wrote later about trying to make some. I won't say make sense of his experience, but trying to to embrace what has happened, what happened to him. Because now, in verse twenty-one, we return really to the narrative. Isaiah said, had said, "Prepare a poultice of figs, yeah, and apply it to the boil, and he will recover." Don't try that at home, right? It's not going to work. You want to go down to the doctor, get some, some an antibiotic of some kind. But they don't have that. So yeah, prepare a poultice of figs and apply it to the boil and he will recover because it's going to be God who delivers Hezekiah just as God delivered Jerusalem or will deliver Jerusalem. And then Hezekiah asked, what will be the sign that I will go up to the temple of the Lord? Which means, what will be the sign that I will live? And that sign was that the sun will go backwards 10 steps on the step of the palace or the temple, whichever one it was. So it is really, if you look at 2 Kings, I think it's maybe 2 Kings 19, somewhere right around there, you, you'll find the same story. It's just like I said, it, it's really one of my favorites. It raises so many questions about how God works in this world and what what prayer really is. And for a Wesleyan like me, it, um, it just drives home that God has created a cosmos in which we 
we are free agents to the extent that we can both choose to love God and choose not to love God. And we can choose to love others and choose not to love others. And when we choose to love, that love can be freely given. Not because God makes us or threatens us or coerces us or has, you know, created little robots or puppies or two-year-olds or anything else, but because we are, we are adults who, who make these choices every day in large ways and small. Will we love God? Will we do good? Or will we walk away from God? And will we, and will we do evil? So, anything else there, Patty? I do not have anything else to add. Okay, well, okay, chapter 39 then. So now we're going to look ahead. 39 is a bridging chapter because now we're going to meet some Babylonians. And you're going, Babylonians? I'm going to tell you, yes, Babylonians. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a foretaste at the end of chapter of this first portion of Isaiah looking ahead to the Babylonian captivity. Um, so let me see what I, I have some maps here somewhere. Okay, what do I have? Okay, so there's an, an artist's illustration of what is coming in 586, about 120 years um, from what we've been reading. The Babylonians are going to rise up in power and they will overrun the Assyrians and they will take Jerusalem. Actually, in a couple of stages. It doesn't all happen at once. It happens over a period of like 20 years because Daniel goes to Babylonia about 20 years before the city of Jerusalem is actually actually captured. And this becomes the map of the land. And the green part is are the Babylonians. Just pretty much everything. And notice there's no orange splotcher anymore. So chapter 39 needs to be read in the light of what's coming. Right. Right? Right. So at that time, this is the time of Hezekiah, still 120 years away from, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and his recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses. The silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show the Babylonians. Now, why do you think he did that, Patty? Why did he show them everything that they had? I really don't know. Pride? I get well. That's what I'm thinking. Like this is a really stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, you know, we we're, we're gonna talk to one of our enemies and you know open up the national treasury and show them what we've got. Show them everything you've got. Maybe he was boasting, prideful. Maybe, maybe he wanted to show them. Oh, it happens. Maybe to he all believed that <laughs> they were super strong, and if he showed them what he had, that yes, they would never. Maybe we'll show them. you our power, and yeah. that we got to protect yeah. ourselves. But yeah, 
maybe I don't know we could bring a good light maybe he just want to sit, want them to see the blessings that Yahweh had poured out on him I don't know there's more than one way to read that as there is most things in life well verse 3 then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and he asked him well what did those men say and where did they come from Hezekiah replied, from a distant land, they came to me from Babylon. Now, just, just grasp that once the Babylonians overrun Jerusalem 120 years later, from that point forward, Babylon becomes the great enemy. Even Rome, in the book of Revelation, is symbolized by the whore of Babylon. Babylon would be this huge name that would instill fear in children and it would be looked back upon as the worst days that they had that God's people had ever gone through because the city was destroyed the walls were destroyed the temple was destroyed the ark of the covenant was lost everything all to the Babylonians so um once, once that happens, you know chapter 39 is read pretty differently by the people who would <coughs> read it. So Hezekiah at the end of verse 3 says, From a distant land they came to be from Babylon. And the prophet Isaiah asked, Well, what did they see in your palace? And Hezekiah said, They saw everything in my palace. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Sebaoth. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. I'm sure Hezekiah can't believe his ears. Nothing will be left says Yahweh. And that's a true story. That's a true truth. Verse 7. And some of your descendants, Isaiah says. This is God's word. Some of your descendants, God says. Your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Well, all of that is pretty darn terrible. <laughs> Verse 8. The word of Yahweh, Isaiah, that you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, well, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Who cares what happens to the grandkids? <laughs> That's right? what I always think. I come here and I've met Hezekiah. You know, you meet Hezekiah and he gets a good report card and he he's given these extra 15 years and all this stuff and the Assyrians are chased away from the gates of Jerusalem and you come down to chapter 39, verse 8 and what does he say? Well, okay, gosh. Well, at least I'm good. Thumbs up. Wow. I kind of feel he, he must have gone off track just 
a, I don't a know. tad. What he, is it? Is even it? when he said there is nothing among my treasures, he doesn't mention mm. anything to Isaiah about how God has blessed him or all you know, all the all the the goodness that they have because of uh, following Yahweh. He it's like mine. It's mine, mine. Mine, mine. mine. Maybe it's just reminding us that that we humans are kind of complicated, right? Yes. And yes, Isaiah has Hezekiah gets a good report card. But even Hezekiah doesn't really appreciate what he has been given and how he could take that word, the previous paragraph, verses five to seven and pronounce them good is is just, I don't know. Like I said, there is a darkness in the human heart and there's even a darkness in Hezekiah's heart. And um, it's a very self-centered, self-focused um, comment there inside the quote at the end, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. I mean, maybe there's maybe there's another way to see this that I've never really bought into, but I've never, never found it. Okay. So, how about you, Patty? No, that's, um, you know, that, I don't know. I think it was kind of telling there at the end, you know, might uh, I don't know. I guess it was all good that God heard his prayers when he did and not at this point. <laughs> all right. So that is the end of chapter 39. And as I said, it, it's a bridge to the Babylonian captivity um, where in essence, um, tens of thousands of Jews will be marched off into exile in Babylon, and they will view it as their, as the consequence of their own faithlessness toward God. There's a lot that happens that you could read if you wanted to in the book of Second Kings between the time of Hezekiah and the time of the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. But it's a period of about 120 years or so, and um, when chapter 40 opens, which is where we'll begin next week, because I don't want to start it, where we begin next week, that is the beginning of what, again, many people, I'd say maybe most at this point, who study Isaiah now would call second Isaiah. And it is the portion quoted by John the Baptist and about words of comfort for these people who have been held in captivity. And when I started to learn more about the scroll of Isaiah and discovered that, well, for most scholars, they have lots of reasons to, they think this is so, that, that, that chapter 40 begins a later section of writing um, in the name of Isaiah or in the school of Isaiah or whatever you want to call it. I found it very astounding and wonderful 
that they are words that come out of the darkest time in the story of God's people because they basically think it's over. That's what happens. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, when the Babylonians destroy the city and burn the temple and the Ark of the Covenant is lost and all the leaders and all the rest of them all marched into exile into Babylon, it just seems like it's just over. But of course, with God, it's not over, right? It's never over. It's not over. And and beginning in chapter 40, which we'll do next week, you get these wonderful uh, words of comfort and encouragement. And we will tie them to John the Baptist um, in the New Testament because... And we'll see how they how they work together. So anyway, with that said, sorry. It went, okay. What else do you have Andy for me today? Andy says sorry, but I'm too dense and don't get verse eight. Well, okay. So let's go back to verse. Let's eight go back, Mr. iPad here. Okay. So in verse 5 to 7, what, what is God promising? That everything they, that Hezekiah has stored up in the palace, all that is owned by the Israelites, it's all going to be carried off to Babylon. Nothing's going to be left. Even his descendants are going to be carried off to Babylon. They're going to be eunuchs, right? And working in the palace of the Babylonians. And Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Well, how is it good? Because it seems awful, horrible, the worst. Hezekiah says, well, there's going to be peace and security in my lifetime. In other words, this is not going to happen until, until after I'm dead and gone. It would be like somebody in our world, Andy, who said, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, the bank's going to come and foreclose on this giant property that my family has and everybody's been counting on and they're all going to lose it, but I'm not going to be be around for it, so I don't care. Is that kind of it, Patty? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I think so. So, yeah, that's, I think that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what's kind of surprising. Surprising to me. But I I just think it, it's always seemed to me to be a pretty pretty self centered pr pretty self centered. Um, <laughs> so anyway, okay. So Patty, I'm do you have anything else over there? If not, you can come over, oh, and ready. we're going to finish up a little bit early because I don't want to start chapter forty today. Well, I'm just getting back to Andy again, who's, who's saying it's it's still not good even at a later date. The only good thing is that he's going to be... He'll be gone. He'll be gone. His lifetime, the remaining years he has left are going to be fine. Mm -hmm. He's going to be... What would, what would we say? Fat, dumb, and happy. Yeah. 
for the rest of his life. And he's not going to have to experience all that suffering and everything yes. coming down the road. That's what makes it such My a bizarre. My great grandson will be a eunuch in the <laughs> in the palace, but heck, I won't be here. That's what he said. It's kind of what, what he, he says. says. Yeah. And so, uh, Andy, if you're befuddled by it, honestly, me too. It just seems so, so, I don't know, out of character. Maybe I'll read a little bit more this week. See if I can find somebody who might have. A better light to put that in. I doubt it, but I'll yes. try. Well, I'll it give it a shows go. Us that I think the Bible does this so often. Um, like he got a good report card. Who's who gets the best is David, with his flaws. It it just maybe it's in there to just help us all see that all humans are flawed and that we do need a savior and we do need to right. have good news and <laughs> exactly and all of that. That's you right. Know, so. Hezekiah is good, but he's not perfect, is he? No, no, no. But again, there was only one person That's that was right. ever born that was perfect. And it's not us. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, thanks, guys. I'm so glad that you were here with us today. And um, if you are free tomorrow, tomorrow is our very first class on Tuesday up at St. Andrew. Um at 12 o'clock, 12 to 1.15 is our, now it's gone back to in-person Bible study, and we have a brand new book we're starting tomorrow, and that is... First Corinthians. First Corinthians. And it'll still be online on Facebook, yes. where it's been. That's yes. all working pretty yes. well now. I will we have my little figured that stuff out. going there, so you could send me prayer requests or questions or comments or anything like that. We always always welcome them. But it's been a good class. We've been finishing up John, and we've averaged about... Anywhere between 50 and 60 plus people in person downstairs in Piro Hall on Mondays. People bring their lunch or they don't. And they're so a fun they, bunch. They are. It's it's a it's really a <laughs> yeah. good class. And so it's you can always, come in person, come in person and bring your lunch. It's always great. Um, yeah, some people bring Chick-fil-A and I go nuts with yeah, the that's smell. Not, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> but we, uh, we hope that you'd give it a try. And if not, but you could listen online, that would be great too. So, yeah. sorry, that was a shameless plug. <laughs> um, again, thank you for being here. And um, I just wanted us all to keep keep um, Sharon Kerr and Bob Kerr in prayer. Um, Sharon has not yet had her surgery, but we're finally in the month of May. And she will have her surgery in about three weeks to um, remove um, a tumor, a cancerous tumor on her kidney. And so please. We know that the waiting for something like that is really, really tough. And we're just praying that her surgeons and everybody are even getting more completely, you, you know, perfected on, on everything that will happen that day. So please close with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, God, for watching over this group. We thank you, God, for your wisdom and your discernment, God, in our lives that we need. And we, we do ask for it, Lord. We pray that you would keep us healthy and safe. And Lord, we do ask that you would watch over our friends and our families also. I know, Lord, that there is a lot of prayers on people's hearts today. There always are. And sometimes we don't get a chance to voice them all. But we pray, God, that right now your Holy Spirit would lift all those prayers up to you. We continue to pray, God, for a peaceful world, for an end to this war in Ukraine, and for peace for those that are in Eastern Europe. It is such an unbelievably difficult time. And uh, we just thank you, God, for all those that are being your hands and feet on the ground. 
It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, adios, everybody. Bye, guys. See you tomorrow, 12 o'clock. Bye-bye.